My name is Dan Song. I'm one of the pastors here. We are actually finishing um, this week the book of Ruth as we've looked at the story of redemption. And so I'm going to invite Jenny McKay to come on up. If you don't have a Bible, there are Bibles for you underneath the chair in front of you. And if you're using one of those church Bibles, you could turn to page 224. But we're going to read the last chapter, chapter 4 of Ruth. And it left us at a cliffhanger, if you recall, from last Sunday. Boaz, who is a kinsman redeemer, has just been proposed in marriage by Ruth. But there is someone who's a closer kinsman redeemer, and we'll look at that. I'll explain uh, what that is a little later on. But basically, there's a closer family redeemer that has the opportunity to marry Ruth. And so we're kind of left in limbo. Who's it going to be? I think our hearts in the story are rooting for Boaz and Ruth, right? But there's this other mysterious man that has the opportunity to be able to marry Ruth. And so we begin there as Boaz goes to share about or tell this guy, the closer relative, that he has the opportunity to take the land but also marry Ruth. And so I'm going to let Jenny McKay read this passage for us. So let's give attention to God's word this morning. Thanks be to God. Pray with me. Lord, we come before you and we give you thanks for your word that endures forever. And we also know that your word transforms our lives and has the ability to help us bring about the redemption that you invite us into, that you are doing and accomplishing here on earth. And so, Lord, I pray whatever sphere of life you've called us to, Lord, help us to imagine what that could look like even this week as we go into our neighborhoods, our families, and our workplaces. And we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The words of a biblical scholar named Phyllis Tribble said this, Sad stories do not have happy endings, but sad stories may yield new beginnings. As I thought about those words, I thought that was so true of the book of Ruth. There is a lot of sadness and darkness in this book, and we've seen that. And what I want to do, just for a brief moment, for maybe someone who might be coming here for the first time uh, or not familiar with the book of Ruth, is just to replay this story that we've gone over for the last three Sundays and then look at what we see here in chapter 4, but really the entire story of Ruth and see what we can learn from this story. Now, if you remember, the, the central character of this story is really Naomi. Ruth opens up with this character, Naomi, and the book ends with Naomi being praised and sung about. Now, Naomi, as she goes out to Moab with her husband and her two sons, because of a famine in Israel, they go out to Moab, and there in Moab, her husband dies. After her husband dies, her two sons marry these two Moabite women. And soon after that, her two sons die as well. So not only is she a widow, but she is also childless without any, without any of her sons, leaving just her two daughter-in-laws. Now, because of just the immense grief that she has experienced, she is like the female Job in the Old Testament. She has lost everything. And when the famine is over, it makes sense for her to travel back from Moab to Israel, 
back to her hometown in Bethlehem. And the two daughter-in-laws are traveling with her, but as they do, Naomi looks at her daughters-in-law and says, it makes no sense for you to be here. Why would you go to a foreign land where Moabites were actually arch enemies of Israel? They waged war together. You be a foreigner, you are a widow, and you live in abject poverty going to a foreign land. So go back and return to Moab. Makes sense. One of the daughter-in-laws, Orpah, returns to Moab because that is the right thing to do. But Ruth, what this book is named after, she looks at Naomi and says, your people will be my people. Wherever you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. And your God will be my God. It was this incredible act of kindness this amazing loyalty and faithfulness to her mother-in-law. And they go back to Bethlehem. And there, as they reside in Bethlehem, they have to eat. And as they are grieving, as they have no, no hope, Naomi is resigned. She just wants to be left to die. When the women in, uh, welcome her back, they ask, is that Naomi? And she says, do not call me Naomi anymore. Call me Mara, because God has dealt bitterly with me. I left full. But I've come back empty. But Ruth, showing that steadfast love, that kindness, she gets up and says, we've got to eat. So she happens to find herself, and we saw the Hebrew rule, chanced upon chance, that she landed in the field of Boaz. And the narrator says he was a worthy, noble man. And he had already heard about this Ruth. This amazing kindness and faithfulness and love that she showed Naomi, her mother-in-law. And so when Ruth comes to, Naomi, or to Boaz to glean in his field, she asks something audacious. She says, I want to be able to glean between the, two har the harvesters that cut all the wheat and the barley and the people that are gathering it. You don't do that. As someone who's a foreigner, as someone who's a Moabite, a widow, living in poverty, you wait till they're all done harvesting and then you can glean what's left on the field. But when she asks this audacious request of Boaz, Boaz, in his kindness to Naomi and to Ruth, lets her. So much so that when Ruth comes back that evening from harvesting from one day, she has gathered 29 pounds of barley. That's two weeks worth of gleaning in one day. And so when Naomi sees all of this food, her heart of resignation, of hopelessness, of grief, she becomes hopeful once again. And she asks Ruth, where did you glean? How could you bring 29 pounds of barley? And Ruth says, well, I happened to be on the field of this man named Boaz, and her eyes light up. Boaz? He is a kinsman redeemer. He is a family redeemer of ours. And what that was, was that it was a practice of Israel that if a man in the family died and left behind a wife, children, or land, it was the kinsman's redeemer's responsibility to marry that widow, take up the land, and protect that family line. Because it was a patriarchal society. It was a man's line. And if he died, the woman had nothing. So that redeemer would come, marry, 
and keep that line, family line, going. That's what the kinsman redeemer was. And another way of, uh, to speak in layman's terms, your problem became the kinsman redeemer's problem. They had to deal with all of that loss and be able to bring back and restore everything that has been lost. So now with this hope that Naomi has, she begins to plan and scheme about a way where Ruth could have some hope in her future. And she comes up with this plan and tells Ruth to take off the clothes of mourning and of grief, of being a widow, and put on clothes where you would be, you would be available. And go to Boaz in the middle of the night and make yourself available so that he might take notice of you and maybe think about marrying you. Well, she does that. And in the middle of the night, Boaz is startled and wakes up and sees Ruth there at the bottom of his feet. And what does Ruth say? Ruth basically proposes marriage to Boaz. Another example of this beautiful, radical kindness that Ruth had for Naomi. Boaz is so taken aback by her love for Naomi and her willingness to marry Boaz, something that you would have never done in that culture or society where a woman, not just a woman, but a foreigner, a widow, someone in abject poverty in a completely different socioeconomic status than Boaz would actually propose marriage, this risky faith that we looked at last week, right? And what does Boaz say? He says, well, I will marry you, but there is someone who's a closer kinsman redeemer than I, and he has first rights to be able to take your, to marry you, take your hand in marriage, and continue to protect your family, Naomi's family line. Which brings us to our final chapter. And what do we see here? Boaz goes to the city gates and finds this man. The way the Hebrew writes it is, it's Mr. So-and-so. Like we're never even given his name. He's just this mysterious dude that we never know about. And so Boaz comes to him and brings this proposition to him. You have the opportunity to be a kinsman redeemer and take all of Naomi's land and bring it back and restore it. And when this man hears it, it's a no-brainer, right? I mean, you talk about money, wealth, possession. It's a no-brainer to say, I will marry or I will be the kinsman redeemer and take Naomi's land because that just means more money and property for himself and his family. And in that moment, your heart probably sinks as an Israelite listening to the story. It's like, oh, not Boaz. But then Boaz brings in this one condition. As a kinsman redeemer, if you take this land, you also have to marry Ruth, the Moabite. And when he hears that, it goes from excitement to just like disappointment. Why? Because he would not get any of the financial wealth from that land. All of it would go to Ruth and her kids if she possibly has kids with this Mr. So-and-so. And so immediately when he hears that he has to marry Ruth, a Moabite, he says, forget it. I don't want to. Ruth or Boaz, she's yours. And that's where we see the elders who have gathered to witness this transaction 
give praise through this saying here in verses 3 and 4. Listen to this. Or not 3 and 4, in verse 11. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who, to get, who together built up the house of Israel, may your act worthily, may you act worthily in Epiphathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. What these elders are praising and singing and about is they're looking at God's past faithfulness with people like Rachel and Leah, these matriarchs who brought up the 12 tribes of Israel. And no matter their story, no matter who they were, though they were marginalized, God still used the past to bring about redemption in the present. And as they see this Moabite about to marry Boaz, they praise God. Not caring about who Ruth is, but knowing who God was and has done what he has done. They give praise because they know God is still faithful, even in messed up, difficult situations, to bring about hope and redemption. And that's what they say and give praise for in Ruth and in the Lord. Well, the story jumps nine months later. And what do we see? In this final act, Ruth has a baby boy. And the women come to sing, not to Ruth, but to who? Naomi. Isn't that interesting? Ruth is the one who's been barren 10 years. And it's a miracle, the way the narrator writes it, that she actually gives birth to a son. But the song of praise goes to Naomi. And what do they sing? Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a Redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Is there a better way to bring a story to closure? From emptiness to fullness. Death to life. Bitterness. Kamimara to joyfulness. Naomi was ready to die. She was resigned. She was hopeless. She was in the darkness with no light. But because of the steadfast loyalty and faithfulness of God through the actions of Ruth and Boaz, Naomi has experienced the sheltering kindness and restoration and nourishment of God. That's the story of Ruth. That's what we've looked at these last four weeks. But what can we learn about as we think about this story in large and in chapter four? There's just three things I think that are important for us to, to at least consider. First, this is a story of grief. It's a story of grief. Without question, this is a sad, sad story. Her story, though, Naomi's story, is a gift to the church for her honesty that invites us to bring our own doubts and our own questions and engage honestly with God. And I know for many of us, we are living in that right now. A number of us have buried our parents. Some of us have buried our children. We have parents here in this room who are going through cancer and the, the situation is dire. Many of us here sit with unmet desires. 
be it relationships, children, jobs. And, and Ruth, this book of Ruth, invites us into a story of grief. And I think it would be wrong for us to be able to just look at Naomi and say, awesome, her grief is gone. She is full now. God has nourished her. God has restored her. And all that is true. But I think all too often we tell this story to ourselves and to others that, well, the grief that you are experiencing will go away. Just give it some time. But I don't think Naomi loses the grief that she has experienced of being a widow, of losing her two sons. That grief goes with her to the grave. Carolyn Custis James, a, a biblical scholar who wrote on Ruth, said this. We are delusional to imagine that those whose lives are marked by deep tragedy will somehow someday escape the weight of grief. We are only kidding ourselves to imagine the story that began with Naomi's piercing cries of lament and anger against Yahweh could end with all unhappiness erased. It's a story of grief. A member of our church shared with this with me many a few years ago, uh, uh, Dr. Lewis Tonkin. And I think this is how we usually think about grief, right? Grief being symbolized by that black ball. And we always tell ourselves, and the story is, our grief will get smaller over time, right? The jar representing our life. But really, the way we need to be able to really see our grief as is the second figure, that says the grief stays the same and never gets smaller, but our lives get larger. We grow around our grief that allows us to be able to still deal with, the, uh, still have the grief, but also live life in other ways as our life continues to grow and expand. Dr. Tonkin said it this way, the grief and loss never feel smaller, but over time, life slowly feels bigger. Life grows around our grief. The grief is always there, as large as ever. But as life slowly expands around the grief, we are now able to experience life in the larger part of the circle as well. See, I think that's something that's an encouragement for us. That the grief we go through and the sorrow and the heartache and the unmet desires, we bring them to the Lord like Naomi. And we hope because of the past stories of God's faithfulness, much like the elders praised, we are able to then know that even in the grief, God can bring redemption. God can bring restoration. And because of that, we can hope because of God's past faithfulness. It's a story of grief, but secondly, it's a story of hesed. It's a story of hesed. I've been using this word loving kindness, faithfulness, loyalty, and it's all those things. That's what the word hesed is. We looked at this two weeks ago. It could be mercy, loving kindness, loyalty, steadfastness, unfailing love, co covenant faithfulness. But as I thought about this word more after I preached on it, I thought of gritty love. Hesed is like this gritty kindness. It goes beyond this letter of the law to the spirit of the law. That's what we saw, especially with Boaz. Boaz was right, could have been right in just letting Ruth glean after the workers left. He could have denied Ruth's request and said, nope, you can't do that. And that would have been fine. 
that would have been still kind of him to let her glean because that was this letter of the law. But the chesed comes in when it goes from the spirit letter of the law to the spirit of the law. When you take risk, when it comes at a cost, say like this Mr. So-and-so who said, I'm going to refuse. And Boaz could have refused too. For certain laws here, and I'm not going to go into it, he wasn't even really the guy that was supposed to do it. But he does it. Why? Because of Hesed. It cost him. It, sa- it, it required sacrifice. And that kind of kindness is littered throughout the story of Ruth and Naomi and Boaz. It is this gritty love. You know where we see this so much, so well, is when these women sing to Naomi. And what do they describe Ruth as? She is better than seven sons. (laughs) Amen? Better than sons, right? Daughters are the best. Better than seven sons. Now you have to understand, in this time, seven was a perfect number. What these women are singing is that Ruth, a woman in a patriarchal society, is saying she is better than perfect sons that you can have. The perfect son can do no wrong, becomes a doctor or a lawyer, whatever every parent's dream is. Ruth is better. Why? Well, one commentator said it beautifully in this way. Older women counted on their sons to care for them, to protect them from exploitation and the harsh elements of society, to be their voice, to stand up for their rights, and to preserve their father's name and estate by bringing the next generation of male descendants into the world. Ruth did all of those things for Naomi at great cost to herself and in a culture that tied her hands behind her back, denied her a voice, refused her access to the legal system, and regarded her as useless. It was all uphill for Ruth, but she did it anyway. Not even seven sons would have done as much. That's Hesed. That's sacrifice. That's costly. That's the things that makes this story move to bring about redemption and restoration. You know what Hesed isn't? I realize this as as this happened this week. I was in the kitchen. And it wasn't my day to do the dishes. But Hesed, <laughs> I'm going to sacrifice. I'm going to clean not only the dishes, I'm going to clean the stovetop, all the countertops. And so I finally did all that, and there was one more big pan. And I was rinsing it out, and I heard footsteps coming up the stairs from the basement. I knew, oh, that's Hannah, my wife. I'm like, oh, I'm going to just keep rinsing. <laughs> just keep rinsing. Wait till she comes up and sees me doing this. Oh, she's going to love this, right? And she walked right past me and kept going. I was like, why did I do all this? That's not Hesed. Hesed does not require, demand something in return. Boaz would lose everything. All that money that would go to invest into that field that's, that's been run over, weeds growing, that have been untouched for 10 plus years. It's going to cost him so much to buy that land, to bring it back. And then what? Go to who? Ruth's children and Naomi's line. That's Hesed. And for us, this story asks us the question, because of the Hesed of God in our lives, who has given up himself, sacrificed everything 
does not demand anything back in return. While we were his enemies, Christ died for us. Then the question that we have to ask is, how do we bring hesed to others? To the universities, your classmates, your friends, your neighbors, your coworkers, your family members? <laughs> Let's go there. It might be easier to bring hesed to people that you just are friends with. But to your family, what does it look like for us to be people of hesed? And that brings us to the last question or the last story that we see here in this book. It's a story of redemption. It's a story of redemption. This is the title of our sermon series, and I think it's, it's fitting that we end here thinking about how this is a story of redemption. There's so much to say, but there's one thing that really struck out to me. How, what is the setting of Ruth? When you go back to Ruth chapter 1, verse 1, we're given that answer. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. The judges. It was a dark, violent, evil time. People did whatever was right in their own eyes, and it was horrible. Go read the book of Judges, and it is rated R. It is, it is horrific, the things that God's people do to one another and to others. And it's in that setting, when Israel is dark, the city, the nation is on fire. It is a dumpster fire in Israel, Right? You've been in planes, right? Most of us have been in planes and you come across St. Louis and you see the arch, you see Bush Stadium. But what the book of Ruth does is it says St. Louis is a dumpster fire. It's the book of Judges. But the book of Ruth goes straight, zooms in on this one house. And what do we see in that house? Hesed. Sacrifice. Love. Loyalty kindness, faithfulness, just in this one little home, Naomi, Ruth, right? While there's a fire going on in the nation, there is kindness happening to one another in this little home and in the field of Boaz. And what happens because of that? Ruth has Obed. Obed has Jesse. Jesse births David, the king of Israel. And a thousand years later, we see Jesus, not just the king of Israel, but the king of kings, who is a man of sorrow and grief, who suffers and dies because of his hesed love for you and I. And rises from the grave to remind us that there is always hope even in the midst of darkness. And he ascends to the right hand of the Father knowing that he will come back and everything will be restored. And even in our grief, even in times of sorrow and injustice, when things are in a dumpster fire, the question of redemption is true of us today. You might think politically, socially, there's so much so many fires going on. But what does it look like for you in your little home, in your classrooms, at the hospital, in the office, to practice hesed so that we might bring redemption to the places that God has called us? Little bits of kindness. 
They had no clue. They had no clue that through their acts of little kindnesses would lead to Jesus. But it did. And the point isn't that we do these little kindnesses so that (laughs) Jesus comes again. No. It's so that we might bring redemption and hope to people who are struggling, grieving. It might be even your own heart. This is the hope that we have. It's a story of grief. It's a story of hesed. It's a story of redemption. And the Lord is asking us, how can we be a part in the ways that God has invited us into the story, the places that he has called you to be able to bring redemption and restoration? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this beautiful story, this beautiful story of grief, of love and kindness, and one of redemption that ultimately points to Christ. And so, Lord, I pray that as we come to the table this morning, Lord, fill us up, fill us up, nourish us, nourish our hearts so that wherever we may go, wherever you have called us to, Lord, that we might be people of Hesed to bring about little ways of redeeming our families, our coworkers, our classes and our dorms and our universities. So, Lord, you might receive all the glory that belongs to you. Do that now as we come to the table. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.